Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you and welcome Partha to the family of original cast patrons over there at patreon.com slash original cast pod who are currently enjoying all the benefits of being patrons at the original cast including access to our bonus monthly podcast the original cast at the movies where this year we are celebrating sequels and biopics what have we done we'll just sit there and i'll tell you we've done this month Amadeus. You can go listen to Carrie Ginsburg, James Finley, and I talk about Amadeus. We've done Lady Sings the Blues. We've done Shock Treatment, the sequel of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We've done Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Upcoming still is The Lovely, the Cole Porter biopic, uh, Return to Oz, Judy, and Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. You can enjoy all those things, but Partha joined at a higher level than just the $2 a month level. And because of that, he has access to our live stream recordings of the original cast of the movies. And when you come to that, you get all kinds of fun things that you don't get when you listen to the original cast of the movies, including this last episode I decided to tell everybody on the live stream what the theme of next year is, because I figured that out. And so now Partha knows because he was there and he got the answer. So there you go. So come on over to patreon.com slash original cast pod, become a patron of the original cast, gain access to the original cast of the movies, gain access to the live stream, gain access. It's the it's the most important thing you can do. I've lost the thread here a little bit. Patreon.com slash original cast pod. Alright, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart. I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is an Emmy Award-winning writer and one-third of the Flophouse podcast. It's Dan McCoy, everybody! Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that patented high energy. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, sure. Well, you know, I saw something that Elliot had, and I got jealous. And so I wanted <laughs> and, and to, have, to be part of it, too. And to have it for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was, I was, was really happy when you reached out. I know you guys don't talk about... You talk about musicals sometimes on the show, obviously. But Elliot always puts himself forward, obviously, as the theater aficionado. He's the theater aficionado, but I would dare say that in terms of... I mean, like... You know, in school he studied uh, screenwriting, but I was a uh, English and theater double major, and I did a lot of uh, acting in actual, non-primarily just comedy plays uh, <laughs> when I was, you know, in, in high school and college, and a little bit thereafter, but not much. Um, so. <laughs> I, I'm the theater kid of the group, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes, I saw your you posted on Twitter the other day some of your photo or video of yourself in hair, which was which was an excellent video. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's one of these things where like I, I I tried to pick a flattering enough little clip of it, but you know it's a it's a a video from the VHS age that has been mm -hmm. degraded from what was originally not very good in the first place because it's just you know the av people at the college <laughs> setting right. up a camera and trying to film the dress rehearsal so I'm, I'm i'm trying to think i was trying to pick the most sort of one where i looked okay <laughs> but 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 i guess it was kind of a fool's errand to think that that was 
even possible. Like it's it's always gonna look silly, even though I remember that production is actually being pretty good <laughs> in person. Sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's no way to look. Yeah, yeah. It's always. But you're also looking at it through the wrong eye. I mean, that's the. It took me a long time to see the same thing in the in the high school you know musical videos that it had for me you know yeah hello dolly or whatever that other people saw i was like oh yeah that was fun not like oh god the the cringe of the Mm -hmm. of the of of all the little details but um i'm sure we will talk about your theater career and hair (laughs) but ostensibly you're also here to talk about uh sweeney todd the demon barber of fleet street So how did Sweeney Todd come into your life? Um, you know, this is, this is a, geez, I, I'm not sure, you know, I think I probably saw the movie first, which, you know, for Mm. theater people, probably like they're, you know, tossing their podcast (laughs) machine in the, in the lake, uh, but (laughs) tossing their scarves over their shoulders. I, I mean, like as an intro, I think that was actually pretty good. Like it cuts a lot of stuff and, um, Mm. you know, they're. They're actors who sing, not like like you know full time singers. But I think it's a it's a pretty good movie still. Uh, mm-hmm. But then like it led me later on. I sought out the the DVD copy of the original and Angela Lansbury Lynn Carew 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 uh, yes. version. <laughs> but I've also seen. Um, there was a version that was like sort of more of a staged concert that I saw on PBS where Emma Thompson played Mrs. Mm-hmm. Lovett. And I saw that production that was downtown, I was going to say just a few years ago, but the pandemic has messed up my sense of time. It was probably, you know, right. more like six or seven years ago or eight. But the one, there was a, a claim. The one at the Barrow Street? Yeah, at the Barrow Street yeah. where you could buy a meat pie to eat with it. That was a little. Right. gimmick that got people in the door um and it was a very small space uh but it was a good production i like the i like the film I, I, yeah I, we've talked about it on the patreon podcast I, I i like it 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 has some things in it I'm, i think are a little too creepy or maybe creepy for the wrong reasons mm. um do mainly to the depp, weird a- you mean johnny depp but also the weird age skewing of everyone uh-huh. because they have johnny depp and helena bonham carter they have to like young everybody down real far. So like Anthony ends up being a child almost, it feels like to me. And that just seems a little I think I, I first came to this through the the video with Angela Lansbury and it's actually George Hearn from the tour production. Oh, okay. It's not um, him on the It's not Len Kyra, yeah, on that one. Um and uh it yeah, that's a tremendous pro shot as we've now the term has now emerged of um of that production of the original Hal Prince staging and everything, which has you know everything in it and is just is just wonderful and to, to watch. That's how I got uh, Audrey to watch. I mean, not like she would have been against watching Sweeney Todd. <laughs> uh, I mean, but I think certainly she'd be more pro watching Sweeney Todd if I was say to take her out to a night 
an evening on on the town and the theater. Sure. Uh, yes. Whereas it's a harder sell to say like we're gonna watch a filmed version of a stage production, but I think the fact that it had her beloved Angela Lansbury in it from Murder She Wrote was the oh sure was the real selling point. Definitely playing a non Jessica Fletcher type role, and in fact, a role that I don't think she ever played anything like it at any mm. other point. Maybe in Death of the Nile, Death on the Nile, she plays yeah. kind of a baddie, but that's more, she's not a murderer. I mean, that, spoiler alert. I seem to remember that in Gaslight, she was kind of. Uh, oh, that's true. And not very nice. Candidate. But, uh, yeah. If you go back a ways yeah. into, her, into her filmography. But of course, by the 70s and 80s, she'd firmly established herself, I think, as, well, not as Jessica Fletcher, but as, as the MAME sort of style mm-hmm. performer that we loved. Well, you're going to get a chance to see it on stage. Next year, oh, really? I think. Now they've just announced. I think they announced it today, actually, as we're recording this. Yeah, that uh, Josh Groban and Annalee Ashford, directed by Thomas Kale, is coming to Broadway. I think next year, around the same time that the Merrily We Roll Long Revival is coming. So we're just we're just filling filling we're up re- the Sondheim revivals reviving, here. Reviving it all. I I saw the revival yeah. of um. Uh, what's the backwards one? <laughs> merrily, merrily. Oh, they have they're another one. They're yeah, doing another. This will be the first Broadway revival. Oh, okay. of it. it's never been on Broadway since its original. Yeah, movie. I saw. I guess it was an off-Broadway mm-hmm. show. I, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who have taken up the banner of that for like, oh, this was like the forgotten Sondheim. Mm-hmm. I maybe it's maybe it's. Partly because I nominally like work in showbiz, although not in like the way, the highs mm. and lows way that the people in that uh, musical do. I've had a right. fairly steady, uh, calm career, but um, I uh, that kind it just kind of bugged me. I mean, like the 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 going in going backwards didn't make me feel like oh, you know, like I really. I really, uh, you know, feel the <laughs> the sadness of what became of all these people because they kind of seemed a little bit like weasels to be from the start, and their like <laughs> big song at the end of the movie is gonna be is I forget it was like all about how like oh it's gonna be our time yeah it's our time yeah yeah that's exactly it. and I'm yeah, like yeah. shut up <laughs> you little snots <laughs> it's funny I find that. Well, did you, so? Had you heard it first, or did you see it first, Merrily? I knew nothing of it other than oh, it was really? like this beloved kind of cult Sondheim musical. Mm-hmm. I I think that Merrily is one of those shows where the score is so good mm. that people think they hear the record, or they hear the album, they hear one of the things, and they go, "Oh God, this is a great show." Why, yeah. How could this only have? Been, how could this have been such a flop? Whereas the, as I've said before on this podcast, and I say it again, the, the the classical wisdom, and I think it's correct, is that a show with a, a bad score and a good book runs longer than a show with a bad book and a good score. And I think that Merrily is a show with a very bad book and a excellent score. Yeah, and it runs back. I also find that. <laughs> It's funny, your your reaction to it seems to also be typical of a lot of writers I know who just oh. are sort of like, why is this running backwards? Why are we doing this, this way? <laughs> well, There's yeah, no I reason mean, to be doing this. I, yeah, I don't think that, like, yeah, I don't think it's making... Myself included, I should say. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not making, like, a big point about anything. Like, it's right. like, 
Okay, sure. Yeah, like you're idealistic when you're young and you're more disappointed right. when you're old. Like what have we learned here? Brilliant. Right. <laughs> Great. You really well taught done. me a lesson here. But you're right. I love the I love the song about collaboration and uh yeah, it's it's got you know, the songs were all Great. I just kind of just it, the people made me <laughs> annoyed. <laughs> the characters, right? Yes, yeah. the characters. Those things we're supposed to hang on to and mm-hmm. and go on a journey with. And I don't think you have to like everybody all the time, but like, yeah. like for example, Sweeney Todd, very unlikable character. Yeah. <laughs> Although I was thinking like one of the one of the things that I think is really great about it is that it it does feel like a true tragedy because like. You know, he shows up at the beginning hardened, certainly, right, and willing to murder. <laughs> but right. yes, but, but I, one person he's willing to murder one one person. person, and I do think yeah. you get a sense of like in another world, like this was a likable man who has a lot of mm-hmm. like concern for you know, obviously for his family, and I think that the young sailor uh, Thomas is that the Tony Tony, yeah, yeah like Anthony Anthony Anthony. Anthony. Yeah. I think yeah. that Anthony. You know, like, until it becomes more expedient to throw him to the wolves, like, right. he does care about this kid. And then, you know, slowly all of his humanity gets stripped away as it goes on. Yes. Well, and it's interesting. One of the things I, I find that's super interesting about the way the characters are set up is how you know, Sweeney shows up. He's going to find the judge. He's going to kill the judge. And, like, that's his thing. That's yeah. all he's really... That's He's there to find... Well, he first... I mean, ostensibly, he showed up to find his wife and his child. And he finds out his wife is gone and his child has been, been taken away by the judge. He's like, okay, well, I'll kill the judge. No, no problem. And... But Mrs. Lovett is the one who's a little more bloodthirsty. Because she suggests, if you've seen the video, uh, the, the George Hearn and Lesbury video, in an early scene, that, like... You can just kill Anthony. Like he's a th- she describes him as the throat to slit, like that guy who do- who I just met for like forty five seconds. Like he's on the door. I can kill that guy. Who cares about that guy? And it's such a she has such an odd. It's appropriate if I, as we find out at the end, very appropriate sort of psychopathy to her that is much more the sort of like devious. Londoner sort of experience that Sweeney sings about like maybe in in No Place Like London and Barbara and his wife where people are kind of just out for themselves and not really paying attention to stuff. Although, I mean, again, she is lovable in her way. I mean... Oh, yeah. She is probably the true villain in that, you know... Yeah. She allows the tragedy to take place for her own gain and to try and secure her place, but it all does seem... Like she has this loopy <laughs> fixation on Sweeney. Uh, one could call it love, uh, sure, but not expressed well. And no, I, you know, you know, this is a play. This is a, a podcast where we talk about the the cast albums. I mean, like mm-hmm. by by the sea. Um, yeah, when I first saw it and maybe this is because it's the movie and they do kind of like a like a little goofy mm-hmm. thing with it where that you see the, her imagination and it gets a lot more Tim Burtony for a while. Um maybe that robs some of the the deeper pathos of it. Like I the first time I heard the whole score, I'm like, there's so many songs here I love and then this song is feels like such a silly trifle in the way it's it's done. 
Mm-hmm. But then the more I've seen versions and the more I've listened to the music, the more <laughs> sad it seems to me. <laughs> I mean, particularly yes. the way that uh, Sweeney <laughs> just interjects <laughs> with c- completely disaffected, like... <laughs> You know, anything you say. Anything you say. Yeah. Um, anything you say. Yeah. <laughs> and over she's and over and over again. spinning out her like kind of girlish dreams as an older woman, and he, you know, it, it's clear to everyone in the audience that she's not going to get what she wants. Think us now, it'll be underneath our flannel when it's just you and me and the English Channel in a cozy retreat, kept all neat and tidy. We'll have chums over every Friday by the sea. And it, 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 it is, I think you've hit on something there about this show, which is that how sad the whole thing is, really. Yeah. Because, like, if you understand what characters are really saying to each other or the truth that underlies, often that's what we, we as the audience have more information than the characters in these songs. And we know that these things they're hoping for or they want or they dream are just not possible they're de- you know like I mean, the song that really gets sad to me over and over again is um not while i'm around mm-hmm. no one's gonna hurt you no one's gonna dare others can desert you not to worry whistle i'll be there demons will charm you with a smile for a while but in time nothing can harm you not while I'm around which is just like when, when Toby's singing to Mrs. Lovett about this, this very affectionate like sweet song about how like he's going to be her protector because he's afraid of Sweeney and he doesn't quite understand that, you know, the call is coming from inside the pie shop there. And he's with one of the monsters of the whole the whole situation. Yeah. But he just want, he loves her so much and she loves him. Like she clearly cares for him. And it's a whole like, man, this is just messed up. Well, and then <laughs> and then, you know, Sondheim's trick that he goes back to, you know, several times, like it's all over into the woods for sure, is to have. A refrain or someone else sing someone's song and the meaning mm-hmm. has totally changed and to have mrs lovett sing it back to him yes like where you know it all becomes completely ironic you know she's claiming that no one's gonna harm him while she's around and she <laughs> is just you can see the wheels turning in her head like am i gonna yeah. have to get rid of this boy somehow you know yeah Oh yeah, because that's the other great thing about this show. I, that I, and I love murder mysteries and things that are like this. Is is where n- nobody in this show is the mastermind. There is no, <laughs> there's no Sherlock Holmes at the bottom of this one, guys. There's no Moriarty. These are just ordinary idiots out there, like doing whatever. Because she keeps getting caught up by both the Beetle and Toby for like having the purse of um of uh, the, Toby's old boss. That's why it's how he cottons on to the fact that like she's something's wrong and that she just has like she keeps slipping up when she's talking to the beetle 
in that song that I love that nobody ever stages. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, your love's gone away. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. Three bells today in the tower of Bray. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. If four bells ring, how many bells are there? Twelve. Ding dong, ding dong. You know, you saying that makes me realize that more so than Burton, like the perfect filmmakers for this would be the Coen brothers to do a, yes. a Sweeney Todd, which makes sense because I was just thinking earlier how Sweeney Todd draws on sort of classical tragedy, you know, like themes mm-hmm. and misunderstandings and and, yeah. and such. And like, I think that that was also the Coens draw from that a lot. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, that would, would be, be a good, good movie. Yeah, that would be really good. Yeah, because that it is their stock and trade of those those mm-hmm. sort of like those the, the sort of <laughs> the Fargo version exactly. The <laughs> just the cruel mistakes. <laughs> yes, and oh, the just... fate. <laughs> and there's the inability to handle you know to, to acting. Gosh, nobody does that better than them. The sort of just in way over your head kind of circumstance character. Yeah. Oh, yeah, which is this show is full. And and what I also really like about Sweeney Todd from a writing standpoint is how it feels like several people are in different shows, mm. but in a good way. Not like we've all seen shows where it's like these two characters are not in the same show. And yeah, that's, this is really messing up. You know, Sweeney is in this sort of very dark capital T track, like Shakespearean tragedy where he's like enacting revenge. You know, it's very Titus Andronicus of him. Mrs. Lovett is in kind of a odd, maybe more Coen Brothersy dark comedy, dark romantic comedy, like a movie Danny DeVito would have made in the early nineties. <laughs> and uh, this is good; I can use all my m- movie humor on you, and you'll you'll get it. Yeah. And like uh, Anthony and Joanna are in this sort of like very Shakespearean, you know, love story where you know she's imprisoned and he's going to rescue her, and it's all very. And it's these these stories. Every every time anybody comes together and makes plans, they're always making plans based on those individual stories, and then they get mixed up in each other, and they get in all kinds of trouble because of it. Because nobody's really ever on exactly the same page. Yeah, now and honest with each other. So Anthony and Joanna, mm-hmm. is there a production that you've seen like? I cannot quite bring myself to care about them ever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that's intentional uh, of the play. I mean, I do think that to some degree, another tragedy of the show and an intentional one is the way that Joanna just kind of gets pulled back and forth by all these men who don't necessarily care much about her. Uh, I mean, our, like Sweeney as a father, if he knew, like, if he was able to, like, get a hold of her, perhaps. But mm-hmm. like, the judge and Anthony are not so far apart because he talks about stealing her. I mean, like, obviously, mm-hmm. it's a consensual theft, which is a right. huge, huge, important difference. <laughs> I'm not gonna, but yes. but I do, but he does sort of just come across her is entranced by her song. What like mm-hmm. the this <laughs> probably my least favorite song. In the in the oh musical. well, which one? Greenfinch and Linnetbird. Yeah, uh, which I know yeah. I know to some degree is supposed to be, I think, a parody of that kind of like 
here's our ingenue and she's singing a song yeah. about how birds sing and whatever like while also being sad because she's a, it's a caged bird song but right. I don't know I just it does, doesn't do anything So maybe her being underwritten is a choice, but I I don't care about the lovers when there's so much more interesting stuff going on. I guess that is also sort of Shakespearean. <laughs> and that it's true. They're never the interesting characters. <laughs> well, I think it is intentional, at least, that they are kind of that they're very two dimensional mm-hmm. at the jump because they are really jo- Joanna is really just a. Like you say, she's a totem. She's not really a person at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Like Sweeney wants her back because it's his daughter. To- Anthony wants her because he thinks she's pretty. The judge wants her because he's just super messed up. And, w- you know, so she does get kind of passed around. What I do like in for them at the end of the show is when Anthony is sent off to the asylum to go get her, to rescue her, mm-hmm. to pretend to be a wig maker and go get her. He and this is I think I don't think this is in the Burton movie I can't remember, but in the um, in the stage version you can the pro shot you can certainly see it where he like Sweeney gives him a gun, and he holds it up like the hero and says I will shoot a thousand men to rescue her and then he goes to get her, and f- the guy figures out that he's there to to take her away and he like he points the gun at the bad guy and is like, I cannot shoot. You know, he has this very moral <laughs> challenge and Joanna just grabs the gun from him and blows this guy away. <laughs> and it's a really great moment of like, of ro- he, he is like a romantic hero all the way through. She's had enough at that point. She's like, no, I'm not doing yeah. this anymore. We're going to shoot him. We're going to go. And like, that's going to be it. Like, I'm not staying here anymore. Yeah. So she, she does have like kind of an interesting, it's a really interesting moment in, in the end of act two where she gets to be like, screw that. I'll shoot this guy. That's I don't care. True. She does here. sort of gain dimension, un- unfortunately, through tragedy, like as, through tragedy yes. later on in yeah. the, <laughs> when the, one of, I forget which one, one of the reprises, you know, her like constantly sort of jumping in and being like, hey, we, we, we're going to be gone by now. Like you yeah, told we, me. We got to go. Yes, right. <laughs> we got to get out of here. Get out of here. Yes. Now let's leave. Well, and she's also part of, not to jump all the way to the end, but she is part of like the saddest, weirdest family reunion in the history of the world mm. where she's in, I think it's the setup. Because it's not on the recording exactly, so I don't, I don't, but I think she's in the trunk. She's hiding in the trunk in Sweeney's barbershop. Sweeney, who is her dad, she doesn't know that, is there. And then the beggar woman comes in, who is her mother, who none of them know that. And all three of them are back in that room with her kind of in, you know, the the trunk being a la the crib. And her mom and dad are there. And then her dad kills her mom and sends her down the chute, then tries to kill her and she escapes, luckily. But it does, like, it's a super, like, little man, I hope nobody ever explained to her exactly what was going on in that. 
I guess nobody yeah. would because the only person who knew who everybody was is Mrs. Lovett, and she's dead at the end. So <laughs> burned to a crisp. Yeah. In the, uh... And then, <laughs> yeah. And then, like in uh, Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading, <laughs> we cut to David Rash <laughs> and J.K. Simmons. What have we learned? Russians? <laughs> We've learned to never do it again. <laughs> what do we learn? <laughs> Oh, for God's sakes. No, get, let him go. <laughs> I love yeah, That movie cracks me up. So when you when you found the, the, the film, when you saw the movie, did you immediately go out and seek out the Broadway recording? Or did it sort of come to you like, later through catching the, the pro shot? And, and, um, yeah. hmm, I, uh, the, well, just the actual soundtrack, the, to have that around. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there came a point at which, you know, I I watched the movie, several years went by, like, I had always been kind of actually a Sontong doubter other than Into the Woods. Mm. Uh, that has changed, but, like, I when I was younger, you know, I wanted more sort of traditional um, songs with a, a melody and a verse and, and such and such, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, a lot of Sontheim to me sounded like... And now we go like here, but now we go to and like it's just like when does the melody kick? Like now I mm-hmm. hear it, I hear the like. I mean, he has some extremely lovely melodic songs, and then he has songs that are more about repeating meaning or phrases from other, you know, like echoes and and whatnot. Like, but it took me a while to get around to the the music, and then I watched, I rewatched Sweeney Todd on a whim. And then I think that was the year that I watched the DVD, the PBS version, and I bought tickets to see the other one. I just suddenly <laughs> had Sweeney fever. Um, <laughs> and I had it on my phone for a long time, you know, and then mm-hmm. I sort of left the world where I listen to music on my phone. Like, it's all podcasts, but I sure. have circled back around to being... You know, a modern aging hipster man would be uh, who has a turntable. And um, I found the Sweeney Todd uh, LP. Uh, mm. So I listened to that earlier today uh, in preparation. So when you say you were a theater kid, mm-hmm. when did that start for you? Was that high school? Was that before that? When did you start becoming a theater kid? Well, I think in spirit, I was a theater kid long before I was an actual theater well, yes. kid because I would do <laughs> They're like born, not made, voices think. and accents and <laughs> such and such. Um, but I saw, um, I saw my high school's production. Well, okay, actually, I'll back up. My parents are, my dad's uh, a professor, a college professor, or he was before he retired. And my mm-hmm. mom started out as a public librarian and then became a librarian at the college. So the college that my parents were employed at would have their plays. And my folks would take me along to see the plays mm-hmm. uh, a lot. I mean, and a lot of them weren't uh, <laughs> appropriate for kids. I was going to say, like, what were you seeing? Well, like I, like, I remember watching like T.S. Eliot's Death in the Cathedral. And uh, I mean... <laughs> Look, I was a nerd. I mean, was. But uh, so, like, I, I think I grasped a lot more of it and got a lot more out of it than maybe mm-hmm. other kids that age would have. But there were some that I liked 
a lot more than others. Um, but then when I was in high school, I saw a production of The Music Man that my classmates did when I was a freshman. And I was too chicken to try out. And mm. The Music Man was one of my favorite uh, filmed musicals. I love mm-hmm. the movie with Robert Preston. I thought it was so funny. And I liked this production quite a bit and i everyone looked like they're having so much fun and i said never again will i (laughs) let the parade pass me by and and my parents said that's from a different musical and i said right shut up (laughs) mom and dad (laughs) stop trying to keep me from being a star uh i'll listen to funny girl if i want like a tello dolly like shut up (laughs) but um well that's the other thing my parents had so much they were older than your average parents like i'm younger than my Mm. brothers by 10 and 13 years and um rock music had largely passed them by and they had a bunch of sort of uh they had some like jazz albums and they listened to a lot of npr classical music and they had a bunch of show tunes so i would hear all these original cast albums, including things for like stuff that is largely forgotten today. Like my mom loved little Mary sunshine. And so I heard that yeah. album over and over again. Like, and I sort of grew up <laughs> thinking it had a bigger cultural footprint than it did. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, all of that stuff. And then in college, that was, as I said, that was one of my majors. I, did, I was in a lot of shows and, and such. Yes. Including. So, so how did, <laughs> Because you did mention when we were talking about which albums to, to discuss, you did bring up Hair. It did come up as as a yeah as a seminal sort of production for you. And I, Hair is an interesting thing because I don't know that I would have a particular amount of affection for it if I wasn't in it. I do think that the mm. soundtrack is pretty good. I enjoy the all the music, but I remember when I was a senior in college and I was going to try out for hair or like making the decision, like, am I going to try out for this? Which, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. I tried out for all of them. Um, but I was like, do I really want to do this one? Cause I read the script and it was mm. just incomprehensible to me. Yeah. <laughs> like on paper, hair doesn't work at all. And then I got cast in it as Claude, who is, nominally the lead but it's really an ensemble show yeah he's ostensibly the lead yeah yeah um there's a lot of time off stage especially in act two yes yes and i have some of the (laughs) had some of the least good songs i think other than the title song but um (laughs) yeah i was gonna say uh, yeah i i just like it's just a mess of a thing and it's supposed to be like that it's like a happening and when you get it on its feet it actually is a lot of fun, and it ended up being a great show. My friend Emily Loyo did some beautiful lighting work for it. It was like the most sort of professional feeling thing that the uh, I think the college had done, uh, despite the clip that you might see <laughs> on <laughs> my Twitter. Uh, well, it was the early two thousands. <laughs> Counter to almost what I just said, like twenty minutes ago. Like hair is an example of a show I think that absolutely works, even though the book is nonsense yeah. because it but because it leans into its concept which is i think a i wonder if you think this is true too. i think that's a hallmark of all successful musicals 
specifically musicals. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of I think movies and, and shows are, sort of have the same thing. But I think if a musical doesn't really lean into what it is, whatever that you know overarching concept or theory or the thing that it's you know the emotion that it's giving out, um, it doesn't work. And I think a great example, and since I know you've seen this movie, I can I can use this as an example. I think a great example of this is Cats. Yeah, where the stage production of Cats really knew what it was. How? It's about cats. That's all it was, was just cats. It's just cats run around, they sing, two hours go by. and They tell you who they are. And that's, yep, they tell you who they are a couple times sometimes, and they're out the door. And the movie <laughs> really <laughs> tried to put something on top of that that, was, that had some kind of framework and a structure and a story and stakes and all this stuff to it. And it just fell apart, obviously, in the most beautiful way possible. Well, not um, only that, they thought for some reason, like, what the audience wants to see is realistic cat people. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, they're not realistic because there's no such thing as realistic cat people. But the, they thought, like, oh, we got to glam this thing up. When right. the more fake the cat makeup works, I dare say, it looks, I dare yeah. say, the better the production of cats will come off. Because mm-hmm. essentially, <laughs> it's a review where we're yeah. like, hey, this is fun. We'll pretend to be cats for a couple hours. I think that what you're talking about, though, with leaning in is like, and here's where the fact that I was briefly considering (laughs) trying to be an actor uh, comes back into play is choices. You know, like they talk about how acting Mm, is making mm -hmm. choices and like leaning in like to a thing, like you just have to make a choice and be happy with that choice and commit to that choice because if you commit by half measures it's not going to work and it's the thing that i struggle with in in writing because you know like there are literally unlimited possibilities open to you but you have to make a choice and if something doesn't serve that choice you have to kick it out which is hard to do because you're like but this idea is good too and like yeah but does it serve the main thing Mm -hmm. and then if it doesn't it's it's got to go or else everything's going to end up being muddy. And likewise, you know, I don't know. Like, uh, I haven't done a lot of stand-up, but I did enough to know that, like, I got way better when I was like, I cannot seem like I'm going to be swayed by you people in any way (laughs) like (laughs) you and the audience are here to listen to me i'm going to make choices again i'm going to commit to it and the part of the commitment is going to be confidence and Mm -hmm. if you don't have that you're going to get eaten alive by the audience and i don't know it's all it all fits together well it does and i think it does connect to sweeney todd too to me because this is a show that absolutely knows what it mm-hmm. is it knows exactly what the tone is and that's why all the disparate factors like i say like all these characters are in different shows it still works because they're tonally all together but what you said about stand-up just checks to my mind that it does really apply to stand-up that there's nothing worse than watching someone do stand-up when they're trying to be somebody else i'm not even talking mm. about stealing other people's jokes yeah i'm just talking about when they are trying to and em- clearly trying to emulate another stand-up that they've seen and that they love which is what everyone does when they start but it you know, it's so disingenuous and stand-up being so genuine. I think the greatest expression about stand-up, um, which is funny because I'm pretty sure it's an ad-lib, is on, I don't remember which Steve Martin album it's on, but there's one part where he starts to heckle the audience as he does such a great job, and he just looks at them and says, I don't need you. 
can do this act alone. I often do. I've always thought that's the great... You don't have to be aggressive about it, but like that's what you have to be as a stand-up. You'll be like, listen, I'm just going to do this, and like you can like it, and I'll feed off that energy if you do, but I'm also not... Like you say, I'm not going to be swayed by you. I'm not going to change yeah. what I'm doing and because certain, of how it goes. To a certain point, you have to find enjoyment in yourself rather than the audience because you have to enjoy like failing. <laughs> like <laughs> You were like, specifically in stand-up, but I think also... In most creative fields, you have to be like, well, you know what? I was happy with it. You know? <laughs> and and if if you're not happy with it, I'm going to take a lesson from that. I'm going to like... Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst thing is if you're not happy with it. That's when you do like... The, the failing is useful in a different way of like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna learn from this. I'm going to change. But uh, I don't know. So when did you, when did you switch from writing to or from acting to writing was that a was stand-up sort of the bridge for that or was it something that sort of happened gradually when did you decide to make that switch i only sporadically you know tried doing stand-up uh later once i was already at the daily show and i didn't have to wait around for people to (laughs) like i I could get slots easier Mm -hmm. oh okay (laughs) (laughs) which was always my problem starting out i'm like i don't want to have to sit through so many open mics and see so much horrible stuff. Like, can I mm-hmm. skip that part? <laughs> and and the and the fact <laughs> is, you can't. And that's why I never like really became a stand-up. But that's mm-hmm. fine. Uh, many of them are my friends, but they all seem miserable. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I think I made the right choice when I got into podcasting <laughs> instead. It's a tough life. That is one of the. It's, I mean, it's really tough. That's a brutal one, yeah. But no, I came I came to New York with the vague idea that I would act. Like I said, I mm-hmm. you know, okay, <laughs> this is more about me than anyone needs to know. But originally, I thought when I was a kid growing up, I was like, I want to be a, a film director. I went to film school after college. I dropped out after a trimester because I realized there's a whole bunch of stuff in it that I didn't care about. I liked the editing. I liked the acting. I liked the writing and directing of performances, but I didn't like sort of the organizational stuff and a Mm. lot of the technical stuff. And so I dropped out. I came with my now ex-wife to New York because she had an internship here, and I thought, Maybe I can actually make a go of acting. I know I was a big fish in a couple of small ponds, so me being in like five shows in college doesn't necessarily mean anything, but maybe I can do that. And I did a very little straight acting. I sort of very early fell into uh, being, you know, doing improv at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and doing sketch and meeting Mm -hmm. people. And I mostly did uh, sketch. I did a lot of that writing. And uh, I did podcasts. I did prose. I did other stuff. And when there was a job open at The Daily Show that my friend Elliot, who is my co-host on The Flophouse, uh, told me about, I applied. And I didn't get it. And Elliot got it. And then (laughs) years later, (laughs) he told me again. And I applied again. And I also didn't get it then, but, <laughs> but <laughs> it's like that scene in Monty Python. The Holy Grail. Well, the king said it was daft to build a castle on the swamp, but I built it all the same, just to show them. It sank into the swamp, so I built a second one that sank into the swamp, 
So I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one stayed up. I, I came very close to getting it that second time. And mm. they said, can we keep your name on file? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. You're never going to call me. Right. And yeah. then like a month later, they called me because they knew that someone else was about to leave. And they didn't want to do a second search. So I, uh, that's how I moved into writing. Oh, so Daily Show was your first was like full-time. First full-time. Really? Yeah. Oh, and then wow. I was there for a decade. I was going to say, then you <laughs> Then that was that was I mean man well it's not a bad so that had to be a little bit I mean wonderful but also probably had to be a little bit scary on some sense oh that sure you I mean the experience of it I mean I had done enough like I said comedy performing and whatnot that I thought that I was funny but then you get there and like I don't think I worked on a script for like a week because I was so scared of like jumping in. Um mm-hmm. But luckily, they were patient with me, and uh, and in the old days, no one got <laughs> fired there, and uh, I learned. And uh, you get over your imposter syndrome pretty quickly because the beauty and horror of it is you're writing a show every day, and the best thing I've read about it is like Todd Levin did a, a, a an essay about writing for Conan where he said how when he was new. An older writer came along and said, "Look, listen, this is a volume business. Like, mm-hmm. not every joke's going to work, but that's fine. You have to just be able to come in and, you know, contribute ten workable comedy ideas, you know, a day or whatever, <laughs> and write a script and and whatnot. And like that, that's the way it is at the the show. Or, you know, I'm not there anymore, but like you." You're not a big enough cog in the machine to ruin it by yourself, so you can sort of get your bearings. Well, and you're doing it. I mean, that is like as the title implies, every day. I mean, at least yeah. four days a week. You're yeah. so it really is like if if you fail on Monday, there's another chance. It's not like SNL where you don't you had to wait a whole oh, week. God. Like you have you've got 12 hours and you're back in the I know some people love it there, but every every story I hear about it makes it sound miserable I, to work there. I agree. I don't like there's nothing. I've had friends write on that show and and I've heard people talk about it with with awe and reverence and tell stories that to me sound horrifying <laughs> and just like absolutely yeah. like just awful 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 stuff, but I mean, I guess some people feed on that. I don't I don't know. It breeds a certain kind of person, I guess. I read Bob Odenkirk's uh, memoir recently and you know, he's a fellow sort of cranky guy from Illinois and I liked his take on it, where he's like, "I don't know, I don't understand why you like throw out perfectly workable ideas in favor of something bad at the end of the week that you have to scramble." Like, I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." Sounds like you yeah, had the experience that I probably would if I was there. So you say you were a Sondheim doubter, which I feel I have to address, or my audience won't won't forgive me. When did that start to change for you? But you did enjoy Into the Woods, you said. Yeah, well, when I was like 10 or so, I was visiting my brother at college, and he had the American Playhouse Into the Woods um, mm-hmm. recorded, and he's like, you, you you, might like this, and I, I loved it, and I was like, I was also, my mind was blown when I was like, it seemed like the whole th- thing had come to a resolution, and they're like, nope, there's another act. Mm-hmm. Nope, like, whole other act, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's a show that I've seen many times, and is taken on greater residence as I've gotten older. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I uh, So I knew that I liked 
that and I came to really love Sweeney Todd and um, there was a period for some reason even though I was making the money for it because that those were the Daily Show years uh, I mean not they, they extended past us but like for some reason I didn't really go to broadway shows that that much until i was divorced uh because like for so long i was like i don't know it's such an investment in money Mm -hmm. if you don't actually end up liking the thing that you've seen (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it seemed like and as a movie guy from way back i'm like but the value the value proposition of a movie is so much higher uh and but then i suddenly like took to going to see shows on my own um mm. during the years I was alone and then when I met my current wife uh Audrey like she really loves theater so we've we've kept that going but um but I saw in that period uh, uh Sunday in the Park with George with uh Jake Gyllenhaal that production mm. mm-hmm. yeah. which was really tremendous um I think I think the conventional wisdom is that maybe the second act isn't as good as the first and i felt that way myself but it was still mm. terrific all the way through and uh merrily we, we roll along didn't <laughs> didn't, didn't grab love, but uh <laughs> but it had great songs in it like i think i started to appreciate that the things that i had wanted as a child out of music were not the only mm. things and i enjoyed beyond the surface cleverness of the wordplay i started enjoying the way that there's additional cleverness in the music also echoing itself the way there would be like refrains and so many of his scores that came back um i saw i i saw the the new uh company revival too uh just mm-hmm. recently uh jesse thorne of the maximum fun network the podfather himself was in town to do Judge John Hodgman, and he just offered me a ticket to company. He's like, "You're paying for dinner." I'm like, "Okay, uh, that seems more than fair." Uh, and I, I had I knew nothing about company, the plot, and so I oh, came wow. home afterwards. And I was like, you know, going down a research rabbit hole, and I was like, "Okay," so I started off with. A production that was gender flipped, um, mm-hmm. where Bobby's played by a woman, and there was a lot in the production that made a lot more sense to me suddenly. Like I thought it was a very good production, and I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. But I was, there were a couple of moments that I was bumping up against. So I'm like, oh, this would have made sense mm. in the original. I, I the best example I can give is the. Uh, uh, Patty Lupone plays the older friend, the one who sings mm-hmm. "Ladies Who Lunch," and I spent a lot of the show thinking that she was um, the the lead's mother. That she was supposed to be the lead's mother. Oh, because okay. So Bobby is, you know, she's turning. The character is turning thirty five, and that's what the show mm-hmm. is all about. And that was another thing where I'm just like. Oh come on! You're complaining so much about turning 35. Yeah, get over it. Um, but 
she's turning 35 and the woman from with the band's visit i forget her yes name katrina link yeah you know she is a gorgeous woman but she is not 35 she is about a decade mm-hmm. older than that and then uh, patty lapone is like also significantly then older still than what that character is written as i think yeah and so i'm like why is this you know you know older woman hanging out with this crew of people who are supposedly 35 like right. this doesn't make sense to me like this one must be like the mother character and there's the scene where in this gender flip version she says like oh you should sleep with my husband Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, is she offering up her stepdad to sleep with? Like, this is a very strange. Yeah, that's. I'm gonna say I'm now sort of experiencing the way through your eyes and be like, that would be confusing as hell. <laughs> but in the uh, but in the original version, mm-hmm. the it's she's offering that they should have an affair, and she's saying like, yeah. I will take care of you. Like, and that makes a lot more sense i think than mm-hmm. this moment in this version where she's like why don't you sleep with my husband anyway yeah i know i agree i think that it was funny because having known company for years and seen several productions of it seeing this production the new york production which i was thrilled to see it was the most successful for me version of that show I'd ever seen hmm. because it was the only one where it really felt like again now I never saw obviously I didn't see the original production that was staged 10 years before I was born I didn't see I haven't seen any of the sort of groundbreaking ones but like it was the first one that really felt like it committed to the premise of the fact that like these characters are kind of less than likable and it, it's kind of weird like it's an odd situation and these friendships are kind of unusual and, and everybody's it's all a little bit odd and every scene was working for me really, really, really well until that moment. Yeah. Where, and because I kept sitting there knowing the show as I do, thinking like, oh, and then I guess Patty Lapone's going to like proposition Katrina Link. That's going to be super interesting. Like, what an yeah. odd, interesting thing to do. And it's not at all, as you say, what happens. Man, you would have been super confused if that, if that had happened, uh, thinking it was her mother. But, <laughs> It, it it really felt like it kind of I don't know I don't know if it it just it kind of petered out there at the end but in it's the production's defense I think the show peters out at the end because yeah. if you see it done in the traditional way and there's a very good and actually this would be interesting I think for you to see a good uh, Lincoln Center I think it was Lincoln Center did a production with Neil Patrick Harris that you can mm-hmm. get on video which also has Patty Lapone in that role and like Stephen Colbert plays Harry it's an all star cast it, it really you know the, the scene at the end there where she says like you know you'll take care of you is like well who will take care of me and joanne kind of goes "Ooh, like something just happened and then we launch into the finale and i can't t- remember how many times i've sat there in the audience being like that was nothing what i just saw that was <laughs> that's not a that is not a cue to start singing being alive and being alive is an amazing song but like this is not yeah th- this is nothing <laughs> what you've just done you're acting like it's something and I get that, but this is this is not a, a cue into a finale, no. guys. I don't think you don't quite have it. Yeah, and it's like yeah, the show, the show does definitely peter out, as you say, because like, yeah. I mean, the big ending is her not <laughs> seeing all of her friends, right? Which is a weird kind of anticlimax. I mean, I really, mm-hmm. I particularly love the staging of this. Uh, I yeah. have not seen any other version, but the staging was was fantastic. I, I. 
I have to ask, like, in other versions, does the ladies who lunch seem to come out of nowhere as much as it did in this version? Because mm. that's a song that obviously I know because it has such a life outside of the show, like a huge yes. life. But in the show, I'm like, this, I, I don't understand why this is happening. It, it's another, ver- I wonder how you feel about, the, 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 there's sort of a bigger thing at play here for me, is that I feel that Company is one of those shows that came out in this weird period of time. I mean, it came out in 1970 and is modern, you know, mm. in 1970. And I think that because it's modern, in, in quotation marks, every revival just simply updates it to when it is. You know, it's like, oh, it's the 80s, it's the 90s, it's the 2000s, it's whatever, it's modern times. But that book, and that is really grounded in 1969 in New York, to me specifically. Yes. It's got this very 1969 New York vibe to it. And that scene in the original production is they go to like a hippie discotheque. And she's surrounded by these girls dressed in that sort of very 60s you know, style. And... The scene kind of more evolves out of how out of place she feels, and she sings "Here's to the ladies." So you know, she, all these versions, I think, of herself in this mm. ladies in the ladies who lunch. So it comes a little more organically out of the fact that she's surrounded by younger women, and she's she's trying to like assert her position in that. Whereas in this production, with it being kind of like, I guess it was a leather bar. I'm not a hundred percent sure <laughs> that, where they were supposed. That to was be. all. That was confusing. Yeah. I guess it was, yeah, it was just like this weird like modern Euro trash disco feeling. Place. Yeah, it's very, very odd, and and it's, so the, I, I I agree with you. The song doesn't like as organically emerge from the scene as I think it does in in the original sort of staging of it. Because I really want, I, I I just I think it's such a shame when people think it's, oh it's it, it's timeless. It works in any time. You know, it's contemporary. It was like no, it, you can still stage this. It's like when they do the chorus line revivals and they cut all the waka guitar and take it out of nineteen seventy five. I'm like no, these are. That's part of the charm of this. These are dancers in 1975 telling us what it's like to be a dancer in 1975, yeah. like specifically. And you can't say that these experiences translate to sort of yes, you know this this big idea of modern is is just not you know it was it was 60 years ago. No, I think that's about. very true. And I this even this version that's you know altered a bit to to be contemporary. Like really, <laughs> I felt myself bumping up against it when early on like she keeps getting what would be answering machine messages on her cell phone (laughs) on her cell phone right and i'm like (laughs) why are you doing this like you like you are alive now you know that's not how it works if you want to like you get this information out like have her beginning texts and figure out a way of like do that doing that like Mm -hmm. you know that no one like leaves messages for their friends no one leaves on a cell phone hey. anymore <laughs> you know so no one leaves them and then if you do leave them no one listens to them you read the little iphone mm-hmm. transcription to try to be like oh i should probably call them back that's all you you get or not yeah. like that's that's the only thing of it hard crashing back into sweeney todd for a second sure i have to ask what is your favorite uh song uh yeah i there's so many i with apologies i think i'll pick Two, which sure. is um the the i like um the worst pies in london uh mm-hmm. i think a lot of people pick uh, a little priest as sort of the comic high point of the show 
but mm. I find it a little too cute with all the jokes. No, yes, rather nice. If it's for a price. Order something else, though, to follow, since no one should swallow it twice. Have you any deal? No, but if you're British and loyal, you might enjoy Royal Marine. Anyway, it's clean, though, of course, it tastes off wherever it's been. Is that squire on the fire? Mercy knows a look close up, you'll notice it grows up. Looks thicker, more like thicker. No, it has to be grosser. It's green. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes on a while. That was I was when I've seen Sweeney Todd in performance. It never feels too long to me. Mm. North, uh, uh, Little Priest. But every time I listen to the recording, so, but like the third time he says, "What is that?" I'm I'm just sort of like, yeah. "Man, we're gonna keep going, huh?" Okay. Like it's, <laughs> it's just, and, but it, like I said, we have a we have a premise. We're gonna, but like when I see it live, it it it's a joy the whole the whole way through. Which I think is yeah. because the actors actually get like you get to see Sweeney do his rises and falls, where he gets back, you know, and the madness co- takes him over, and he she kind of brings him back down. Like you right. actually get to see that instead of it just being <laughs> repeated and repeated yeah. and repeated. So yeah, on the recording, it does kind of lose its charm. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but so for for sort of a comic song, I prefer the worst pies in London, which mm-hmm. I think is just such a tour de force for whoever's playing Mrs. Oh, Lovett. Yeah. And it's like I've, <laughs> I mean, I don't have the correct range to sing it, but I've tried to sing it in my own way, and it is well nigh impossible. <laughs> What it is when you get it? Never thought I'd live to see the day. Men are thinking what's a trick finding for animals. What are dying in the street? Mrs. Mooney has a pie shop. Does a business, but I've noticed something weird. Lately, all the neighbors' cats have disappeared. I've to wander to a what I call enterprise. Popping pussies into pies. Wouldn't do in my shop. Just the thought of it's enough to make you sick. And I'm telling you, the pussy cats is quick. I like the quartet version of Joanna. Oh yeah, in Act Two. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Anthony's lone version of Johanna is the one that is always like sung and played, and I understand because it's a solo and it's a you know right. showcase piece. But I think the quartet is the more beautiful version um, mm-hmm. with Sweeney singing. Uh, his bits and um, I think in the is that the one which is the number that is sung as he's murdering people yes is that that's he it is, he is yes yeah I think he that's that killing people and yeah is also why I love it so much because it is clearly very deliberately like okay I'm gonna give you the most beautiful melody in the whole show probably mm-hmm. and it's gonna happen mm-hmm. while i just murder my way through all mm-hmm. these people and oh yeah it's great and it's great in again when if you watch the pro shot because a joke you don't get on the cast album is that you know he's killing all these people and he kills the people and then the last person who comes up comes up with a little kid mm-hmm. who sits down on the thing and he just gives the audience a look like I guess I really got to shave this guy. <laughs> yeah. And he just gives you, and he actually just shaves him and send, gets paid and sends him on his way. <laughs> 
Dan, thank you so much for for talking to me uh, tonight. Where can people find you? Uh, well, you should tell them where they can find your 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 excellent Twitter account. Oh, subject to much controversy, I, thank but you. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, Elliot makes fun of my Twitter. I took him to to Judge John Hodgman Court on one of the bonus uh, yes. the donor episodes, uh, but um, for to try to make him admit that they, my jokes are funny, but. Uh, <laughs> If you want to see these controversial jokes that, um, look, I'm not going to tell you. They're, capital J jokes. No, I'm not going to tell you they're not dumb. That's part of the point. I don't understand. <laughs> what do you want from Twitter? Like, that's baked into the pie. But anyway, it's at Dan K. McCoy. Impossible to read it as anything but Dank McCoy. So don't even try. Uh, my middle name is Kirk. It's Dank McCoy. I, at Dank McCoy. Dank McCoy. I I was was so before I do these interviews I was I I set up you know a series of tabs on my browser of things to talk about and I always you know one of the first things I Google is my guest's name to pull up their website or anything like that and what you do right now for yours it has your who is Harry Mudd <laughs> which by the way which really like you I will say that threw me for su- such a loop as a ki- as a kid who grew up in that period of time when the who is harry crumb like poster was on my yeah. video store wall for like for way longer than it should have been uh it, it was a real like that's not that movie wait is that that movie? oh no that's star trek what am i talking it was a real <laughs> sometimes i post things that i think are probably just for me and the internet is a big enough place and enough people thankfully follow me that i'll get i'll get surprised <laughs> by the response people it's will specificity yeah yeah people respond to that sort of thing um but there's that and of course as we mentioned i have a podcast called the flop house if yes you've enjoyed me on here check me out there it's about bad movies so if you like bad movies it's a good podcast for you and if you think that that sounds mean <laughs> that then it's also enough... if you think that sounds mean it's also sometimes about topeka kansas yeah so that's, that's, <laughs> that's so true different. that's what i was, I was like <laughs> there's a lot of snark on the internet i understand if you're like i don't want to hear comedians make fun of bad movies um i think we try and do it with a lot of affection and kindness i i find that the one reason i've been listening to you guys as long as i have been as somebody who loves bad movies and gets bad movies from you, got recommendations from your, your show all the time. And and as I've said before, I teach a class on bad movies occasionally in American University. Wow. I find that your show is the is the most celebratory <laughs> of how nuts these movies, like, because it's really just like, isn't this so much fun and a joy that we get to watch this? And only I find you guys take a movie to task when it deserves it, when it's creepy, when it's weird, when it's like not weird, weird in a bad way. I mean, that it's like, you know, we have some moral objection, perhaps. Yes. And and, uh, I think the best movie for anyone who listens to this podcast cannot recommend enough. um, Listen to the Cats episode. Mm -hmm. You will not be disappointed. The unbridled joy. Also, that you guys all express in that episode is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, obviously, it's a musical for you, musical <laughs> fan listeners. But um, yeah. uh, our guest, we had Jenny Jaffe on there, but we also had Natalie mm-hmm. Walker on there, who is a, a lovely cabaret singer and knows musical theater in and out. So that should be a a, a, and a value to you and i'll also put in a plug if you are somehow a maximum fun subscriber listen to this show and do not listen to the flop house you have to find the cat's commentary that you guys <laughs> did as a bonus episode 
because that is also a joy to listen. You don't even need the movie. You know the show. Just, just watch, listen to you guys watching. The joy when Skimble Shanks comes in that 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 radiates through my your headphones is just absolutely wonderful. <laughs> well, I think that three to four fifths of us, I, I have some question about at least one of us were stoned for that uh <laughs> and natalie for sure when skimble shakes came up like i've never seen anyone so happy just when she realized what was about to happen yeah, that's what it is she remembered he was coming back that was that, the anticipation oh, to be that stuff. happy it is uh, and it's the best on our best part of the movie i mean without question sure. it's the best part of the movie but Oh man, that is yeah, so much fun. Oh, Dan, thank you so much. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you. And are you beautiful and pale with yellow hair like her? I'd want you beautiful and pale the way I dreamed you were, Joanna. And if you're beautiful, what then? yellow hair like wheat I think we shall not meet again my little dove my sweet Joanna The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for t-shirts, tote bags, magnets, and more. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Dan McCoy for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. And though I'll think of you, I guess, until the day I die... I think I miss you less and less as every day goes by, Joanna. And you be beautiful and pale and look too much like her. If only angels could prevail, we'd be the way we were, Joanna. Joanna.